Welcome to Essential Dynamics, another episode of Smart Talk and Essential Philosophy from the mind of Derek Hudson, whom I admire. I'm your host, Reed McCollum, and I'm here indeed with Mr. Derek Hudson. How are you today, Derek? Reed, I'm great. Uh, really excited for the conversation we're about to have today. Yes, yes, I'm can excited I, as well. Can uh, I introduce our guest? Or is yes, that... please. Tell me oh, who... please. Please tell me who this person is, because just by the looks of him, I have to say I have my doubts. Yeah, so so Jeff Tatz is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Results. Results is a Western Canadian consulting firm that uh, I think does some pretty good stuff, and I want to talk to Jeff about that today. So, Jeff, welcome. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, thanks for that warm introduction, Reed. Oh, anytime, <laughs> Jeff. Love you. So, so, so Reed uh, really likes the podcast environment because he keeps claiming he's, he's uh, the best looking guy in the room, which is always, which is always always the best. It's always true. (laughs) I'm the best looking guy in this room. I'll tell you. Yeah. I won't, I won't dispute that. It's hard to prove on this platform. So I guess you can get away. We have a lot of leverage and latitude is what you're, uh, is what you're sort of telling me here, I guess. Hey, Derek. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So Jeff, um, Thanks for thanks for coming on. I really wanted to get you on early in season two uh, because I I feel like I got to sort of pay it back <clears throat> for the experience that I had a year ago when uh, results uh, launched their results unleashed webcast. And uh, you you guys did just fantastic work, and I know you put it together really really quickly. And um, I thought. I, you know, I was a wrapped attender of season one. I was uh, starting my business. I had time on my hands and uh, I really liked the guests that you brought on. But one of the things that, uh, you know, sort of full disclosure that I found is that I would get super excited about your guest and whatever uh, insight they had. And they were always super compelling. And I would say negotiation, that's the answer. And I'd spend a week thinking about it. And then it would be employee empowerment. And then it would be corporate culture. And I thought, just a second here. And I look at my bookshelf. And I, I got books on all those topics. And I'm thinking, but what do I think? And how do you put it all together? And um, between that, that experience and then conversation that we had with Bruce Alton, which we talked about on uh, episode one of, of season two here, Bruce said, Derek, you need a framework. And so I was asking myself, how do I, how do I think about things? How do I solve business problems? Um, and with the recognition that I learned a lot of stuff, but I didn't know how to put it all together, I started working on the framework. And so created essential dynamics. Jeff, you and I have had a chance to, you know, kind of talk through, uh, through what that is and how, how I think about it. And I really wanted... Uh, I mean, I want your perspective on all of it because um, I uh, admire your work, but, but I'm I'm quite interested in how how you help your clients and how that might be framed in the way we look at essential dynamics. So, uh, f- first of all, Jeff, uh, uh, thanks for coming. And and what have you seen that you either like or have questions about with the stuff that we've been doing? Yeah, well, I think I'm I'm just impressed in general by anybody that. Uh, that takes a risk and takes a chance and puts themselves out there and, and is uh, challenging their comfort zone. So uh, that, that's the first thing that I, that I admire Derek uh, about you is you're a very ambitious learner and, 
all of my dealings with you. I think the first time you and I ever had a conversation was at a leadership retreat uh, down in, in Kananaskis at the Pomeroy Lodge. And uh, you just struck me as a very inquisitive, curious and humble uh, human being. And those are the kinds of people that I generally like to hang out with. So uh, I, I think sort of seeing your leadership evolve and your adaptability in the last couple of years with everything that's happened in the world and with you personally, I think, I think that's really admirable. And, and I know that your intention behind doing this, uh, this podcast and, and being active on this platform is, a, is genuinely about helping people. So uh, those would be some of the things that really uh, uh, stand out for me in terms of what, what you're doing and what you're all about. Hey, thanks for Jeff. And so I think that probably the first time I ever saw you, you were on stage speaking at that conference and uh, you kind of talked about your quest. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, and I guess it is only two years ago. I mean, it feels like we've lost so much time pandemic that it feels like it was five years ago. But that was, uh, that was a talk at 55 North, I think, about some of the things that I've learned in my life about failure. And I think the more we fail, the more humble we are. And I think uh, the, most, the people I admire most in, in my life, whether I know them personally or not, tend to be uh, fallible, uh, humble characters. And so that, that, that's a little bit about what that talk was, uh, was about, if I recall correctly. And uh, for, for Bryn here, who's always come from a sports angle, some of your stories were about your involvement in competitive sports as a, as a player and as a leader. Is that right? Yeah, I, they were. And I, I've been really fortunate because I, I've had this luxury of being uh, on the inside of, of a, uh, of coaching hockey and in the locker room with junior hockey. But then I got to see behind sort of behind the veil, I suppose, of how professional sports teams operate on the business side. And I, I, I was again, really lucky that my first, what I call my real job when I was still finishing up my degree at university of Alberta was working in the sales and marketing department for the, uh, for the Edmonton Elks. First time I have had a chance to use that, use that term. Uh, and so uh, then that was such a family business. So, you know, my, uh, my little cubicle was right next door to Hugh Campbell's and you grow up idolizing these people. And so you want to work very hard for them. And the harder you work, the more opportunity that you get in a small organization like that. And, and so I had the, the, this um, wonderful opportunity to just to have a lot of different roles for the Eskimos over a couple of years. And then it's a small community. So then uh, I was offered a job to come and work for the Oilers. And so I spent, three years working for the Oilers and their sales department while I was also trying to carve out a junior hockey, hockey career. So I'd be selling season tickets during the day and, and I'd be watching Craig McTavish put, uh, put the players through practice on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And then of course uh, in the sky in the press box for, for every single game. And so that was, uh, that, that was some of the best fertile learning ground on both the, the coaching side of things and the business side of professional sports that a person could ever hope for. So now you're a management consultant. You leave a consulting firm that works with, as I as I've been able to tell, pretty ordinary mid-sized companies, typically that are that are owned uh, and managed by the same people. And um, what's translated from your uh, your work in the highest echelons of professional sport to these uh, these businesses that grind it out every day? Yeah. So I, Derek, I think there's lots of parallels and I, and I think that's why I was attracted to this role in the first place a little over a decade ago. And the whole, the whole notion of our business is uh, it really comes from a foundation of potential. So it, it's a pretty w widely agreed upon that every person and every organization on the planet has untapped potential. 
And when you look at that, and, and that's kind of a, a common understanding, I think, the unfortunate reality is very few organizations actually care about doing something about it. And when we start to look at the organizations that are intentionally trying to figure out how to be better versions of themselves, how to have a better culture, how to have more loyal customers, more referrals, a more predictable business model, we find that that segment of the market has a very difficult time figuring out the solutions on their own. And most of the reason for that is they just don't have time to figure it out. You're so busy as a typical business owner, just being in the business, immersed in what has to get done today or this week. So uh, as we recognize that as a pattern, we have now come up with uh, a series of methodologies, processes, systems, and frameworks that if you apply this framework over a long period of time is going to have transformational impacts on your business. At the very least, it's going to dramatically increase the odds that you'll become a significant market player over the long term. And there's honestly not a lot of secrets in the formulas and the systems anymore, Derek. I mean, you, honestly, you can Google these things. And the interesting thing about the world right now is virtually any problem that we have in our lives or our businesses can be solved from a Google search. And yet, you know, you referenced all of those books behind you it's very difficult for us to take this expansive amount of information that's at our, literally at our fingertips and do something with it. If we don't have clarity of what's essential versus non-essential and we don't commit to a habitual way of behaving, that's going to allow us to see what I would call the, count, the compounding effect of working on the right things literally every single day. So we've, t we've taken the framework and the tools and we've come up with what I think is kind of a magical way to, to, uh, to help companies implement these tools. And that's been the difference for us. So just like a great personal trainer, we bring in accountability, we bring, we bring in frequency and cadence, and then we bring in the right tools at the right time to help our companies meaningfully progress over a long period of time. Jeff, I want to jump in here. I, I'm uh, interested at the start of your uh, explanation, you said that there was, uh, everybody has untapped potential. In this case, if in a corporate sense, are you talking about the employees uh, to focus on their potential or are you talking about your customers? Yeah, it, so it's all of that, I think, Reed. Like when, um, when, when we first started having conversations with companies, it's always with the senior executive team. And if, if the senior most team can't get its act together and can't model the behaviors and the habits that uh, they desire their employees to model, it's going to be very difficult for there to be any sustainable difference made. And, and, um, and then, you know, we also take the same approach with our own employees. But if we can get the executive team working in a certain way, being really efficient, really cohesive, high functioning then we'll often start to help them get their um, get their their functional teams throughout the organization, all their leaders, managers, and employees sort of drinking uh, drinking the same Kool Aid, so to speak. Do you think that? Uh, pardon me, Derek, for for interrupting on your guest, but I do you think that there's a uh, uh, <laughs> do you think that there's a chance uh, that changing CEO's behavior trickles trickles down. Excuse me. Uh, do you think that's that's how if if the uh, if the owner or the COO or the 
or uh, the executives in a company are all uh, moral examples, will they automatically uh, recruit the same beneath them? Yeah, well, I think I think there's actually some some evidence of both of those things. So there's um, one one of the one of the big problems that we see in the world of business is what we would call leadership incongruency, and it's almost always a blind spot. It's almost always unintent, unintended. And what I mean by that is there's a big difference between what most leaders are saying and what they're doing. And we know that what sets the standard and the tone for any team, any organization is what people do, not what they say. So uh, uh, a common example is accountability. And I, I've never met a business leadership team that doesn't espouse the benefit or the desire uh, to have a highly accountable culture. And the moment that they, that they express that, and then you have them actually make a list of all the employees that are underperforming, and then get them to describe all the things they're doing to proactively confront that non-compliance and underperformance. The list of employees is quite long, but the list of, of actions that they're taking to mitigate that underperformance is quite, is quite short. And the moment that that's the case, there's an unintended miscommunication and incongruence between what the leadership says and what the leadership does. So the moment there's more congruency between the words and the actions, without even changing any performance management, without even changing meeting structures, without leaders even acquiring more sophisticated leadership capabilities, the standard has already been raised in an organization. And there's also some good evidence, Read on, you kind of allude to the hiring piece of it. We often will not hire above our own level of understanding and competency. So the more competent we are, the more, you know, the more, uh, the more aware we are, the, uh, the more we're clear about the habits, behaviors, and standards that we're willing to tolerate and accept and not tolerate and accept, that's the moment that we've also raised the hiring standard because we're intuitively going to look for those people. And there's lots of ways that we can refine the hiring and the screening process, of course. There's lots of inherent bias there. But uh, those behaviors uh, have a trickle-down effect without even trying. So it's a great question, Reed. So, Jeff, I want to go back to something that you said um, my notes are insufficient, but you said, I think you were used, used the word habitual. Yeah. And um, when I think about the, the framework that we've set out with, with essential dynamics, where there's a, a purpose and there's a path that we go on um, and the, the people take the path to accomplish the purpose and speak it very simply, um, the path is what we call systems. And in my mind, you can't improve if you don't have a system that you can look at and improve. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is if you can make a system habitual, then you can step outside it and look at it. Um, and what, what, ex, what success have you had in seeing companies develop habits? Yeah. So lots of, lots of success in that, Derek. And I, and I think that, uh, if I was to take a sort of a step back, we're big fans of trying to understand how do human beings naturally want to behave? What are the environments that will create human beings that naturally aspire to do great work? There can be a tendency to over-process things, to uh, over-systematize things, to over-measure things. And 
metrics and repeatable processes are really, really important, but I would say not at the expense of the environment and the climate that those, that the employees are, are, uh, are behaving in every single day. So we're always very, very careful to, to start with the deeper, more aspirational environmental type of type of things. And what I mean by that is it's, it's critical that organizations and leaders figure out uh, three key things and it's, it's vision and culture pieces, but clarifying what those are is, all employees want to know three things from their employer. They want to know where we're going, how we must behave, and why the work that we're doing actually makes a difference in the world. So often, companies skip that step and they go to metrics and dashboards and KPIs. But if you haven't captured your employees' imaginations, if you haven't inspired their hearts and grabbed their enthusiasm and intrinsic motivation, all of those metrics uh, and KPIs and dashboards are not going to have nearly the, uh, the, the effect that, that you'd like them to. So once you get those things in place, then it becomes important to, to measure what are the outcomes that we are trying to achieve as a company and then distill those down to every department and then literally every single employee. Every single employee that works for you should know exactly how their roles are getting measured. So then the habits start to become a lot easier, Derek. So once you have those things figured out, literally every single team and every employee would be involved in a weekly discussion with their manager and with their direct colleagues about how their team has performed in the last week and how their contributions uh, personally have contributed to the team's success failure or otherwise. So that's just sort of one demonstration of, of, of how those become uh, uh, habitual. Hey, that's fantastic. So um, one of the other ways that I, I talk about systems is drivers and constraints. Yeah. And I think what I've heard from you is the best driver is a sense of purpose that an employee has that aligns with the organization. Is, is that what you're talking about when you talk about that, that, Intrinsic motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, Daniel Pink's one of my favorite authors, and uh, one of my favorite business books of all time is Drive. And what Dan Pink did in that book was he studied environments that were known for uh, for developing and generating intrinsically motivated employees. And what he found is there were three key things that were at play. So number one was autonomy. So it's basically measure outcomes not behaviors. And if my outcomes are not generating the desired result, then we can start to look, we can look at my habits and behaviors, but start with the outcomes and then let me be my, my, myself. So get out of my way. Don't micromanage me. That's the autonomy. The second piece is, is uh, mastery. So it's having a chance to learn, grow, be pushed, be coached, be developed. And then the third piece was purpose. And those three things are critically important to any environment. So that purpose uh, I, I talk about Disney as an example. Disney's got a very simple core purpose. They're, they've got cruise ships and theme parks and, and they're in the movie business. And you think about what their core purpose is, it's as simple as making people happy. So Disney, when they're a large organization, sure, they've got lots of pitfalls and things they could be better at. But one of the things they're great at is onboarding culture and training. And if you look at Disney, some of the most impactful advertising they get are from their lowest paid employees. There's uh, there's hundreds, literally hundreds of videos that have gone virtual that have gone viral, of custodians in theme parks drawing Disney characters with wet mops, and the reason that those uh, that those spontaneous events occur at theme parks is because they're so deliberate at hiring, onboarding, and training all of their employees that they're there to do one thing predominantly. 
It's to make people happy. And then here's how we measure your performance, but it's not at the expense of that deeper why we do what we do. And those are the kinds of transformational impacts any company can have with their employees if they start with them with the heart and the mind and the aspiration at the beginning. That's, that's fascinating. And I so appreciate what you're saying about Disney and the lowest paid, the lowest goes right down the scale uh, to, to the, to the janitors making uh, custodians, making uh, cartoon characters with mops. I love that. Uh, Now I didn't read, I'll be honest. I did not read drive. But I did read Christine by Stephen King, so I hope there's a there's a parallel there. Uh, I'm wondering, Jeff, how do you deal? How does a corporation deal with failure? When it, it I know it depends on the size of the failure and the circumstances, but in a general sense, your team has come across an obstacle they did not overcome. Mm-hmm. Tell me how how to deal with that. Yeah, well, most companies uh, deal with failure very poorly. And the reason for it is that the, the basic human reaction to failure is to go and find someone or something to blame. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid of that response. But what we should recognize is just because that's sort of the, the, uh, the, uh, the initial response that most of us have to that, it doesn't mean it should govern our actions. And the reason that, that that's the instant response is, we're, we're still working with an old operating system. Our brains are, are designed to keep us safe. And so when mistake and failure happens, the first thing that we want to do instinctively is we want to make sure that our position, our authority, our power on our team in our organization is not being threatened. So if it's somebody else's fault or someone else's fault, I'm going to be protected. So we know better now. We don't have to listen to these old operating systems. So a better way to deal with failure is learning is learn, uh, learn from it, create, them, create learning opportunities from them. One of the easiest ways to do it is to create a mantra internally as opposed to asking what went wrong with your teams is to ask what can we learn. And there's even a couple simple ways to embed that in, into your organization. You can do, uh, you can do um, uh, quarterly uh, uh, planning reviews where you're actually talking about what the expected outcomes for the next 90 days are and what could go wrong. You can actually have after action reviews where you're talking about what the results you intended to achieve were and why you didn't reach, uh, achieve them. So you turn it into an actual learning opportunity where you all embrace that. The other part of mistakes that's important to read, though, to also uh, clarify is there are some bad mistakes. So not all mistakes are created equal. So mistakes where you're consciously taking a risk and experimenting in the marketplace or with your culture and you fail from those, those are great learning opportunities. If somebody happens to send the wrong document to your to your to a competitor or if they send the wrong invoice to the wrong customer, I mean, those are mistakes that, that we want to make sure that we're looking at whether it's a training or a process issue. But if it's that good category of mistake, we want to be very intentional that the senior most leaders are embracing and creating a philosophy of learning from them and almost, you know what, celebrating mistakes. That's the degree we have to get to. I just, uh, I, I just want to go back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just want to go back, Jeff, to um, talking about purpose. And you know, it's one thing to line up with the purpose of the happiest place on earth. Um, it's another thing when you're making rig mats or something like that. Uh, and you have a lot of, you know, customers that, you know, may, may not capture the public's imagination. Uh, 
Yeah. But but they still find purpose in their work. Can you give us some examples? Don't break any confidentiality, but some examples of, you know, employees that really appreciate yeah. the, the purpose for these like, you know, good, good Edmonton companies. Yeah, it's such a, Derek, it's such a good question. And we actually work with a ton of construction companies just by nature of uh, uh, how large the construction sector is. And I, and I think that the construction industry is more predisposed to partnerships. So that, that helps us too. We're kind of like a sub trade for them on the business execution side of it. And um, uh, every single company has a core purpose, but they have to sometimes be a bit more resourceful about it. One of the hangups that a lot of leaders have is they, they, they think that their purpose has to describe the work that they do, and it's actually not true. So a really valuable exercise that companies can do is to, is to think about all of the end users of the work that they do and what the deepest level of benefit that they will derive from the work that they do is. And uh, an example that this is going back about 10 years ago now, we worked with a, with a traffic light construction company at a Sherwood Park. And that's all they do is they put up traffic lights. That's, what, that, that's their job. And, and they've now evolved into more of a technology company where they're monitoring traffic flow and congestion and coming up with more strategic advice for municipalities. But very quickly, they recognized that the value of, of, of really well-designed traffic flow is not just for traffic flow and congestion, but it's actually for safety. And the light bulb for them after much discussion was that if they do a great job, they are actually authentically getting people home safely to their families. And that was the thing. It actually makes the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. All they do is put up traffic lights, but it's not just that. And so every time somebody goes through something, we just take these little daily things for, for, uh, for granted. How many traffic lights are we gonna drive through just in the next five hours? But if it's done right, we're going to get home hopefully safe and sound and they're going to reduce collisions. They're going to reduce accidents. And it caused them not only to take more pride in their work, but they actually created a more innovative culture when they recognized if they could get better at what they do, they could actually make road conditions safer and maybe even have an impact on serious injury and fatalities. That's a fantastic example. And that's kind of where I'm, you know, I started, I guess, with the, what's the purpose and purpose X and purpose Y. And if your purpose was only to get people home safely, it's hard to figure out what, you know, what the business model is. Yeah. But it, yeah. but well, if you have it. Yeah, Derek, that's where people get stuck is they think that none of these tools and habits are for use in isolation. So if all you do is figure out where you're going what your values are and why the work matters. Well, that like, that's just the start. And you know, I mean, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get some up, you'll get some lift from that, but you're not going to have transformational results. You, you then have to clarify exactly what's the problem that you're solving in the market. Are there enough customers that have those problems? So it doesn't get us, it doesn't absolve us from having strategy and having metrics and having high levels of accountability and tough conversations and hiring and firing and reprimanding and correction. And there's, there's, I mean, there's, that's why one of the things that makes business just so unpredictable and challenging, there's literally thousands of things that we have to do as leaders to create the kind of long-term effect and impact that we desire. That's a thank. Thanks very much, Jeff. So I think what you're telling us is it's complex. Um, it takes a lot of work. It's better if you're intentional about it. And ultimately, you got to line up the, the interests of the people with uh, 
the purpose of the organization and then never be satisfied that you can always learn and, and do better. Yeah, that's right. And you started off by asking me a question of the parallels between my, my sports, um, you know, my business experience in sport and my coaching experience in sport with what I do right now. And I'll, I'll just tell you that I've, I've, I've never met any overnight success as an athlete. You look, the best players in the world, they don't get that way just because they're gifted. They start with perhaps some, some certain, you know, uh, uh, God-given uh, uh, or biological uh, uh, advantages, but it's what they do with those opportunities. You know, uh, Billy Moores has become, a, a, uh, over the years, just an, an amazing mentor to me and so many others. But uh, he told a story quite often that when he was coaching Gretzky in his final year in the league, uh, they were uh, they were trying to they didn't make the playoffs that year but they were at a playoff push and so I think it was January or February of Gretzky's last year they were on the ice at Madison Square Garden in morning skate and uh, he was working with the defenseman in one end and and Gretzky was taking the five on three power play unit in the other end and out of the corner of his eye he just something intuitively caught his attention and it was that Gretzky was getting the puck at the top of uh, at the top of the umbrella at, at the blue line on a five on three. And uh, there was a very small little thing he wasn't doing. He wasn't faking a shot to freeze the penalty killer to draw them up and create a passing, a dangerous passing lane. So Billy stopped what he was doing, skated down the ice, said, hey, Gretz, uh, I, I know you're trying to work on the five on three for tonight. I just I noticed one little thing you're not doing. And, uh, and it's just important that you remember that little small little thing. And Gretzky said, wow, Billy, thank you so much. I got sloppy on that. And uh, I don't know if they scored a goal on a five on three that night. But here's the best player to ever put on skates in his last, literally in the last 25 games of his career. And he was not only open to the feedback, he was gracious and grateful for it. And if Gretzky can do it, what's our, you know, what's our, what's our excuse for not being receptive to that kind of feedback and continuous improvement? So I just want to close, um, Jeff, you, you talked about untapped potential in people and organizations. Uh, have you run across an organization that doesn't have potential that with a little work can be revealed and built on? Yeah, lots of them. And it's the ones that just don't admit that they have it. So, uh, but no, I never, I never have. And look, I, I don't, uh, I don't begrudge anybody for running a business the way they want. There's just consequences to that. And I, I think that what we're seeing now, there's just way too much. The, the research that organizational psychologists are doing now on what makes successful companies the way they are, they're demystifying uh, what we need to do to do that. And, and in the world of business, there's always going to be uh, uh, different approaches that will work and, and experiments that we're going to continue to learn from. But I, I believe in my heart that 20 years from now, the only companies that will legitimately be successful are ones that, that have a, a mindset of creating an environment where their employees are really, really valued. Every single one of them that the lowest paid employee is paid a lot more than what they're paid right now, that relationships matter, that we care about people's growth. We care about them as a whole person because more and more employees choose where they work. We don't choose them. And if we're going to be an employer of choice, eventually people are uh, and senior leaders and owners are not going to have an option. They're going to have to create what the people are demanding. And uh, and I'm excited about that because work is just so important. We spend most of our, most of our lives is spent at work. And if we don't enjoy our, our work, if we don't derive at least some level of satisfaction and meaning from it, if we don't not only like our coworkers, but actually love some of them, 
then I, then I think that's a real shame. And, and so that's uh, what kind of drives me every day is to help ambitious leaders that are humble and lifelong learners create mo- those kinds of companies. So uh, Derek, I appreciate the question. Well, and thanks so much for your time, Jeff. That was, uh, that was fantastic. It's an MBA in a box here. Jeff, where can they find, where can uh, curious listeners find you or read more about you? Yeah, so they can uh, they can go directly to our website at unleashresults.com. And if you don't mind the occasional NFL Tom Brady, New England Patriot tweet interspersed with some leadership tips, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Tetz. Happy to connect with people there. Great. And Derek, where can people find you? DerekHudson.ca. And I usually don't brag about my Twitter handle, but Jeff's one of my most prolific people I follow. And so it's at Derek Huds on Twitter. That's great. This has been a really enlightening and wonderful uh, discussion. I so thank you, Jeff, for talking to us. Uh, you brought back some wonderful memories for me uh, of when I played with Gretzky and used to give him advice. And uh, I so appreciate that. For Essential Dynamics and Bryn Griffiths in the studio, I'm Reed McCollum. Until next time, consider your quest. 